This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and sex that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sweetie, are you there? She's asleep. It's Brenda, the babysitter. Hey, Brenda. How's Nicole doing? She's great. Talks about you nonstop. (laughs) Good. That's good. How's Hollywood? It's Friday. Shouldn't you be, um, out partying? I just came from a party. I'm at my agent's place now. Listen, do me a favor. Pass a message to Nicole. Tell her I know that her birthday is coming up and I haven't forgotten my promise. Will do. I better get going. Send Nicole my love. I will. Done with your call, Krista? Yeah. Thanks for letting me use your phone. No problem. You sure you don't want to come to the after party? No, thanks. Though you're welcome to stay the night. I'd rather keep our relationship professional. Fine by me. See you around. Bye, Krista. Bye-bye. Krista Helm was an ambitious actress who was trying to climb the ranks in Hollywood and willing to do whatever it took to make it. Krista was five foot nine with light hazel eyes, incredibly strong-willed and beautiful. Krista lived as a free agent and had many lovers from all walks of life. A-list stars, producers and directors, high-powered financiers and politicians. But Krista also had an enormous secret she kept from her paramours. Krista was creating an archive chronicling her experiences with all of her lovers in a private diary and recording them with a hidden audio recorder. Krista's secret records may hold the answers to why she was killed. On a fateful night in February of 1977, Krista was brutally bludgeoned and stabbed to death over 22 times. Till this day, though there have been many suspects and motives, no one knows who killed her. Krista had a nine-year-old daughter named Nicole who didn't live with her. Krista promised her daughter that she could come join Krista when she turned 10. Sadly, Krista's promise would remain forever unfulfilled. Krista died with many secrets. Secrets told to her in intimate moments by powerful figures who would never want her to go public. But after police discovered Krista's body, they noticed that her secret diary was missing. This was the diary where she recorded all of the embarrassing details about everyone she slept with, their performance in bed, their fears, and deepest secrets. And it's speculated that this diary is exactly why she was murdered. One of Krista's lovers wanted to keep her quiet. Hey, excuse me, what are you? 
This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the murder of Krista Helm, a 27-year-old starlet who was brutally stabbed and beaten to death in front of her agent's home in West Hollywood in 1977. If you like the show, we'd greatly appreciate if you could kindly leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Every review helps. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode is released every Tuesday. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Krista Helm was born Sandra Lynn Wolfile on November 10, 1949. She was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was the eldest of three girls. Her father's name was Harry, and he owned an asphalt company. Her mother's name was Dolores, and she was a housewife. Harry's and Dolores' marriage began to sour shortly after they had kids. In 1952, three years after Sandy was born, her parents divorced. Sandy and her sisters continued to live with their mother, Dolores. Dolores became a born-again Christian and eventually fell into alcoholism. She entered a series of awful relationships with a string of abusive and violent boyfriends. Unfortunately, Sandy and her sisters were molested by her mother's boyfriends. Eventually, Harry rescued them, and the girls moved out of their mother's home to live with their father and his new wife. As she grew older, Sandy developed a form of scoliosis, which required her to wear an uncomfortable back brace. Doctors believed her condition was due to her mother's constant use of diet pills during pregnancies. In her adolescence, Sandy struggled with low self-esteem. She eventually became rebellious and developed a snarky and adventurous personality. She soon found that she possessed a magnetic charm that drew people to her. One thing was certain. Sandy wanted to be somewhere else, and ultimately, someone else. According to her daughter, Nicole, quote, From the time she was a little girl, she would dance and sing and tell everyone she was going to be a movie star. And of course, in little Milwaukee, Wisconsin, no one believed her. A childhood friend of Sandy's named Darlene said that Sandy wanted to be more than a housewife. Sandy's favorite saying was, All's fair in love and war. She would do her best to live by those words for the rest of her short life. In 1967, at the age of 17, Sandy fell in love with a 27-year-old man, Gary Clements. Gary was rumored to be involved in the Milwaukee mob. Not long after they got involved, Sandy became pregnant. Soon after, they had a shotgun wedding. Gary? Gary? Their wedding took place in Chicago in 1966. The morning after the wedding, Sandy woke up alone in a motel and found that her new husband was gone. He drove off while she was asleep and she never saw him again. Sandy searched high and low for months, but never found him. A few months into the search, She learned that he allegedly died in a motorcycle accident in Florida. Of course, she never knew for sure if that story was true. Her husband's fate forever remained a mystery. 
Krista gave birth to her daughter Nicole in 1967. After Nicole's birth, Sandy started a new job at Travato's around 1967, an Italian restaurant on Milwaukee's east side, which was rumored to be run by the mob. So you are the new girl, huh? That's right. New but ready to work. Heard you have a little girl. Yeah. I've got a daughter, too. You married? Sort of. It's complicated. He died. Or, well, first he ran away, and then he died. So I was told, anyway. Oh, jeez. I'm sorry. The new job turned out to be fun. Sandy became fast friends with a co-worker named Diane. Both had daughters that were around the same age. It wasn't long before Sandy began dating again, though not exclusively. Sandy's outgoing personality attracted a bevy of suitors. Around 1969, Sandy and Diane rented a two-bedroom apartment together near Travato's. The women's mothers were willing babysitters, which allowed Diane and Sandy to go out at night. At the new place, Sandy invited strangers over all the time. (laughs) A year later, in 1970, Sandy and Diane moved to New York with the hope of becoming models. Sandy realized that it would be difficult to pursue a modeling career while caring for her two-year-old daughter. Sandy's roommate knew a woman in Vermont who would be willing to care for Nicole. With Vermont only a few hours' drive from New York, Sandy could visit Nicole regularly. It was a hard decision, but Sandy decided she needed to be on her own. She left her daughter with the woman in Vermont and moved to New York. It was at this point that Sandy adopted a new name. Krista Helm. New York in the 1970s was a gritty and exciting city. It was prime time, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. According to statistics reported from New York Magazine, approximately 14,569 murders occurred from 1970 through 1979. Krista had found herself in a whole new world of adventure, and she took to it instantly. It wasn't long before she was booking modeling gigs. She also got plastic surgery. Some of her friends joked about the surgery and said that she couldn't stand by the radiator for too long because she'd melt. In an interview with the Greenville News Piedmont, a paper from North Carolina, Krista mentioned that she ate nothing but protein to keep her figure trim six days a week so that she could wear the slinkiest of clothing. Now, Krista didn't come to the Big Apple alone. She had friends like Diane, who eventually gave up on trying to become an actress. Meanwhile, Krista's younger sister, Marisa, ended up moving into town as well. Marisa, like Krista, was gorgeous and ambitious. The two of them made a striking duo. It wasn't long before the savvy sisters were garnering invites to the hottest parties in Manhattan. (laughs) Nightclubs like Studio 54, CBGB's, and the Palladium were at their peak by the 1970s and were frequented by celebrities and socialites. Krista enjoyed Manhattan's party scene. At a party, Krista befriended an up-and-coming clothing designer, Lenny Barron, who became one of her closest confidants. Another important figure from her time in New York was a wealthy art patron named Stuart Duncan. Duncan threw parties for big names, like the Rolling Stones, and he soon found himself enamored with Ms. Helm. 
Duncan set Chris up in a beautiful brownstone apartment on 31st Street, nicknamed Merlin's Magical Den. Krista decorated the apartment with crystals and threw fantastic parties, which were attended by fellow trendsetters. Duncan hired a PR person to ensure that Krista was consistently featured in gossip columns and seen with the right people. It was apparent that Krista was very good at connecting with men who had a lot of money, but some women tended to dislike her. Her acquaintance, Jeremiah Newton, who ran in the same circle and was also close to Lenny Barron, had this to say. I asked Krista if she wanted to help out with an Emmys party in New York. The women there, they hated her, cursing her behind her back. Well, it wasn't her fault she was beautiful, but you could see the expressions on these women's faces. They were so glad when she left that she didn't take any of their dumb husbands with her, which she certainly could have. Men were all over her. That's amazing. You just clap your hands and the stereo turns on? <laughs> yep, this baby is state of the art. You turn it off the same way. Try. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Care for a drink? What you got? Wine, cognac, whiskey, tequila, you name it. I've also got harder stuff. No thanks. Wait. Uh, are those real fur coats? Oh yeah, they're real all right. How many do you have here? I lost count. You can have one if you want. Really? Of course. You're my best friend. Consider it my Christmas gift. How are you doing this? managed to get some modeling work. You've also managed to get some rich boyfriends. Well, I won't deny that. Duncan gave Krista a number of breaks, including one of the biggest opportunities of her career, a starring role in the 1973 film Let's Go For Broke. Let's Go For Broke was a cheesy, low-budget action movie. Krista played Jackie Broke, a TV reporter who needs to save the world from a diabolical formula that transforms people into ground meat. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> okay, this sounds like a must-see flick. It's too bad that few copies of the film exist. <laughs> I wonder why. One of the concepts in the movie was a ray gun that turned people into dog food. Literally. I must have that weapon. To date, there is no legal or illegal means to see this film. Let's Go For Broke remains unavailable for public viewing. The producers tried for years to find a distributor. Even after Krista's death, they kept trying, potentially to capitalize on the tabloid story, but to no avail. Then again, maybe it's a good thing because the movie was reportedly terrible. Krista's acting in the film was also apparently less than stellar. According to the director, Ron Walsh, Krista refused to work on her craft. Well, even the best actors frequently employ acting coaches to make sure they're at the top of their game. But Krista was having none of it. Walsh and one of her co-stars tried to coach her, but she refused their help. She was also something of a diva on set and wasted the crew's time. The film went over budget as a result. On the other hand, Krista's acting apparently did show potential during comedic moments of the film. This led some to wonder if she had a future in comedy. The movie opened in Cincinnati in 1974 and closed just two weeks later. Not very surprising, given the plot twists of humans turning into ground meat. On the plus side, Nicole got to fly out and see her mother for the screening of the film. The mayor presented Krista with symbols of the city, 
which she gave to her daughter. Undeterred by the film's failure and inspired by her first big role, Krista moved to Hollywood in February of 1975 with dreams of an acting career. In her quest to become a star, Krista would soon be hobnobbing with Hollywood celebrities. But instead of finding success as an actor, Krista met a grisly fate. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue the story. Hollywood in the 70s was going through a cinematic renaissance. Filmmakers were creating new technologies and telling new kinds of stories that audiences had never seen before. Films like Chinatown, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Godfather were redefining what the medium was capable of. But Hollywood wasn't just the entertainment capital. It was also the capital of celebrity tabloids. Testing, testing, August 24th, 1975. Star gossip for the San Antonio Star. Interview with Krista Helm, tape one. Hello. Okay, let's get started. Thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, you're up and coming. You're new and a very popular bachelorette in Hollywood. Lift the lid. How old are you and who are some of the men you've been dating? Well... I can't lift the lid all the way, but what I will tell you is that I am 24 and moved out here to the sunny West Coast seven months ago. As for the men I've been seeing, here's a short list. Desi Arnaz Jr., Engelbert Humperdinck, uh, Johnny Rivers, and Roman Polanski, the director. Gosh, that's quite the list. What about one-off dates? Um, I've dated Mick Jagger, incredible performer. He turns me on whenever he's on stage. But in person, not so much. And the job I ran. He flew me to Switzerland and his palace is in Tehran, just to meet me. His sex appeal lies in his intelligence. A smart cookie, but he's also a sex maniac. Who's your current love? Michael Sarazen. He's an actor and we're living together in Hillside at his place. Where'd you meet him? Oh, at a hotel pool. He was breaking up with his actress girlfriend, Jackie Bissett. You've got to tell me, where do you meet all these superstars? Dating is tough in this town. Parties and through mutual friends. Do they all approach you or... (laughs) I do my share of man chasing if I really get turned on to a star. Any married men? Some of them are married, so... I can't talk about them. Their wives would get all uptight. Honestly, I just like men, especially actors. They're groovy people, and if a guy comes on to me and I like him, I figure, why not? Just like in New York, Krista took to the in-crowds of Los Angeles quickly. And like before, her sister Marisa came along for the joyride. She was also followed by her friend Lenny Barron. But despite Krista's knack for making friends in high places, true stardom eluded her. The only parts she was able to land were small roles in shows like Starsky and Hutch and Wonder Woman, both in 1976. And though L.A. had plenty of opportunity, the city also had dangers. Drug use was rampant, and crime and homicide rates were on an upward swing. According to statistics from the FBI, the 1970s were an increasingly violent time in the City of Angels. 
Homicide increased 84% from 1970 to 1979. During this decade, 4,950 criminal homicides occurred, an average rate of 17.1 homicides per 100,000 people. The streets of Hollywood were not safe. Krista wasn't finding much success as an actor, but she was doing all right for herself. She had a new home in Beverly Hills, where her daughter Nicole was able to visit for short stints. And she also had a host of new benefactors to help support her lifestyle. Her latest sponsor was a wealthy, powerful financier named Bernie Kornfeld. Kornfeld was a notorious womanizer who practically had his own harem in his mansion. Krista lived at his house for a while, along with several other starlets and models. Krista had many other lovers in addition to Kornfeld. We don't know the exact number, but we do know that her paramours were some of the most powerful figures in Hollywood, including famous stars and directors. Krista even had a relationship with a world leader, the Shah of Iran. The Shah had Krista flown into Iran and hosted her for a week, lavishing her with exquisite gifts. Krista also had lovers from Hollywood's underbelly. Around 1976, she was involved with Rudy Mazzella, a notorious drug dealer. Some in the local community thought Krista closely resembled the late Sharon Tate, an actress who died gruesomely at the hands of the Manson gang. Roman Polanski, Tate's former husband, was even one of Krista's many lovers. Krista was morbidly fascinated with Sharon Tate's murder, a fascination made ironic by Krista's own fatal stabbing in 1977. Krista was described by people who knew her as so perfect. Every man wanted her, and every girl was jealous of her. But she also had a dark side. Though Krista was charming, she could also be ruthless to those closest to her. What the hell is your problem? I've been trying to get a hold of you all day and you haven't returned any of my calls. I've been busy. Busy doing what? And with who? None of your business. It is my business. I've been hearing stories about you. What kind of stories? The kind that say you'll sleep with anyone if he's rich enough? <laughs> so what? You're not even going to deny it? Like I said, who I see is my business. What about us? What about us? I thought... <laughs> oh, you wanted to go steady? Sorry, but I'm a free agent. I'm not looking for anything exclusive. Tell me, what do I mean to you? Nothing. That's it! I'm leaving! Good. And forget about ever coming back. <laughs> Krista's sister, Marisa, took note of her callous behavior. An interviewer asked Marisa, would she step over bodies to get what she wanted? Would she use people? Marisa responded, yes, I would say so. The interviewer then asked, is it possible that that has played into what happened to her? And Marisa responded, I've always presumed that that was a part of what happened to her. Krista's cruel behavior drove her younger sister to move out of the home they shared in Los Angeles. So Krista found a new roommate named Stephanie. By 1977, Krista was frustrated. Her acting career was going nowhere fast. So she found another way to stay busy. She started keeping a diary. A very detailed diary. Krista created a score chart for the performance of her lovers and began writing down everything her partner shared with her in bed. 
What's more, Krista made audio recordings of her lovemaking. She was creating her very own library of audio celebrity sex tapes. <clears throat> Lover on September 27th was just okay. Nothing too exciting, though he was handsome. Not sure if I'll give him another shot or not. Now, Lover on Tuesday the 30th, she was something. Wild in the sack. The only problem is that she's insanely possessive. The question is, why did Krista create these records? What did she plan to do with them? According to police, many of the recordings, if not all, were made without her partner's knowledge. Maybe Krista made these recordings of her lovers so she could replay them in private. Stephanie, Krista's roommate, listened to some of her tapes and voiced her belief that Krista made the tapes as a way of boosting her self-confidence. I think that these tapes were intended as blackmail. It wasn't easy to record people then. Tape recording technology wasn't nearly as cheap and portable as it is today. Recording someone in secret was both difficult and cumbersome. Why go to all that effort to secretly record your lover unless you're hoping to use that tape against them? You may be right. After all, Krista's friend Darlene later told investigators that Krista was seeking to exploit these records for a tell-all book, which she planned to sell for a lot of money. Krista, Jesus Christ, how many guys have you slept with? <laughs> a lady never tells. Gosh, you're really living it up. I'm jealous. I feel like I'm wasting away out here. Well, you gotta come and visit. I'll introduce you to some nice fellows. <gasps> Actually, you want to hear a secret? Spill it. Remember those lists we used to keep back in school? Of all the boys we liked? Yeah. Well, I've upped my game. I've been writing a sex diary. No, you're making this up. I'm serious. I even keep score. What? Yeah. I have a little chart I made and everything. One day, I'll write the biggest tell-all book in Tinseltown history and blow the lid on all these spoiled movie stars and how bad half of them are in the sack. Then I'll sell it to some publisher for millions. Oh, Krista. Don't worry. I won't forget you when it becomes a bestseller. I'll give you a signed copy. This isn't funny. These guys you're messing with have a lot of power. They're not going to want their information out there like this. You're going to humiliate them. This is Hollywood. Here, humiliation is a way of life. No one respects you unless you have them by the balls. You're playing with fire. Be smart and just forget about writing that book. Are you crazy? This diary is going to make me famous. No, it's going to make you infamous. Get out while you can. I can't. I love this screwed up town too much. Krista didn't listen to her friend's warnings. She kept recording her lovers and writing diary entries about them. And she kept pursuing stardom. But by the winter of 1977, she realized that her chances of landing an acting career were slim. She decided that she wanted to pursue a musical career instead. So she persuaded a famous DJ, Frankie Crocker, to produce a record for her. Krista met Frankie during a brief stint at a radio station in L.A., and they got involved. In her usual fashion, she was involved not only with Crocker, but other members of the music production, too. She was also in a relationship with a backup singer named Patty Collins. Patty was suspicious and territorial of anyone trying to get close to Krista. But Krista would not be put on a leash by Patty or anyone. 
She refused to draw boundaries. Nothing and no one was off limits. Adding more scandal to the mix, the group's keyboard player, Blair Aronson, was casually dating Debbie, another backup singer in the group. Debbie had become fast friends with Krista, but Blair was cheating on Debbie with Krista all along. This made for a contentious situation. Krista was sleeping with Frankie, Patty, and Blair. This created an understandably tense atmosphere at the studio, which meant that little work was actually done. There's no evidence that they ever even got to the point of recording anything. In case things weren't tense enough, Krista and Blair were caught in bed together by Debbie on February 12th of 1977, the same day Krista was murdered. (laughs) You are pretty dashing while playing that keyboard. So much talent in those fingers. What was that? Oh shit! Look out the window, it's Debbie. Jesus, she's gonna kill me. No, she won't. She's a sweetheart. Hey, Debbie! Come here! Join us! Oh, she's running away. No kidding. We should never have done this. Really? So, you don't want to keep going? Because we can stop, you know. I've got plenty of work to do anyway. Well, no, I didn't say that. So, then ask me to stay. (laughs) Krista. I said... Ask. Please, stay. Mm. (laughs) Fine. But only because you said please. Shortly before she was murdered, Krista sent her friend Darlene a disturbing postcard with a cryptic message. Dar, I'm in way over my head here. I'm into something that I can't get out of. After an evening of partying, Krista borrowed her roommate's car and went to her agent, Sanford Smith's home in West Hollywood to convince him to go out clubbing with her. He politely declined. Krista then walked to her car where she was brutally murdered. Krista was bludgeoned and knifed. Her body was dumped in the street beneath her car. She never became a star or wrote her tell-all book. And she never reunited with her daughter. The mystery surrounding her death has spanned over 40 years. And to this day, Her case has never been solved. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Hello? I'll be right there. Gancy, good to see you. Show me what we've got. Look what they did to her. Jesus. Nobody deserves this. Our forensics guy is on his way. At first we thought it was a hit and run, what with the tired tread marks through the blood on the ground. But when we took a closer look, her body's riddled with punctures. How many? From the looks of it, she was stabbed over 20 times. Strikes to the head? Can't tell if it was the back of a knife or a hammer. Who is she? That's the thing. We don't know. She's got no ID on her. Anybody see anything? We've got a young kid. Some wannabe actor in the neighborhood who heard her scream. 
and another pedestrian who came across the body. Outside of that, nothing. Great. The lead detective assigned to Krista's murder was Larry Gancy. Little did he know that this assignment would forever haunt him. He had few leads and a lot of question marks. One chilling coincidence is that one of Krista's movies, The Legacy of Satan, ended with her being stabbed to death. Even more, Krista had told people in 1976 and 77 that she had a premonition that she was going to die soon and that the murder weapon would be a knife. But these weren't the only coincidences that troubled investigators. So we have no leads here? Well, there is one thing, but it might just be a coincidence. What's that? A celebrity was killed here last year, on this exact night, on this same block. Stabbed to death, just like our girl here. What a neighborhood, huh? Who was the other Vic? The guy's name was Sal Minio. That fella who played opposite James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause? Yeah, that's him. Anyway, stabbed in the heart, just like Jane Doe here. What if their murders are connected? On February 12th, 1976, exactly one year to the day before Krista's murder, another celebrity was stabbed to death on that same West Hollywood block. That celebrity was Sal Minio, a bisexual actor who was twice nominated for the Academy Award for his roles in such films as Rebel Without a Cause and Exodus. Many, including Gancy, later believed that Minio's killer was also Krista's, However, as we will explore later, there were a number of suspects who had strong motives to kill her. Krista's murder left some of her friends and acquaintances so afraid that when questioned, they said nothing. Some were even questioned again decades later, and they were still too afraid to speak. Perhaps they know the truth of what really happened. Who killed Krista Helm? Was it a serial killer who targeted pedestrians on that one block of West Hollywood? Or was the murderer one of Krista's many lovers? Did she make the wrong person jealous? I don't want you to see her anymore. Why not? She's just a friend. Yeah, I remember when we were just friends. Look, I can't handle jealous people in my life. Get over it or we're done. You're breaking up with me? That's up to you. Did Krista know too much about one of her paramours? You have to promise not to tell anyone about this. No, but it's such a funny story. I'm serious. This could ruin my career. All right, all right. I won't tell anyone. You better not. Calm down. You don't need to get so huffy about it. Just promise me you'll never tell anyone about this. I promise. Did Krista keep her promises? Or did she try to blackmail the wrong person? And if so, who was willing to kill Krista to protect their secrets? You promised not to tell anyone. You promised. Wait, please, I can explain. Too late. Next episode, we'll delve further into Krista Helm's mysterious murder. We'll track the detective's search for the truth about one of the most unsettling homicides in Hollywood since the Black Dahlia case. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the murder of Krista Helm. An investigation that will examine some famous and genuinely twisted suspects. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Joshua Skye and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, and Kenna McEnroe.